I'm Tavis Smiley, and uh, I'm delighted to have you tuned into our program today in this final hour of today's uh, program. And in this hour, which I've been looking to for quite some time, Michael Melsner was hired by Thurgood Marshall to be on staff at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Years later, he would represent the GOAT, Muhammad Ali. Later still, he became one of the leading forces behind abolishing America's death penalty. What a life, what a legacy. I can promise you that you will not be disappointed in this hour now that Michael Meltzner joins us on Tavis Smiley. Uh, Michael Meltzner, how are you today, sir? I'm fine, and it's a great pleasure to talk with you, Tyler. It's a great honor to have you on. I mean that sincerely. Thank you for the opportunity. Glad we've got an hour. Uh, I cannot do justice to your august body of work and witness over all these many years. I'm going to do my best uh, to uh, give the audience a better sense of who Michael Melchner is and what he has done for the benefit of all of us who call ourselves Americans. Um, I will get to your book, I promise, later in this hour. Uh, Mr. Melchner has a book out. It's called Mosaic, Who Paid for the Bullet. We'll get to that later in this hour. Uh, but I'd be remiss to not spend a good part of our time uh, in this dialogue talking about his amazing uh, an empowering career. And I want to just walk through certain parts and facets of it, uh, if I can. Let me start where I started a moment ago when I mentioned that you were hired uh, by a guy named Thurgood Marshall to be on staff at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Just take some time and tell me about those days. Well, uh, you know, the, there's just a certain amount of luck in the world, and I've had more than um, than my share. Mm. And it just was an accident of history that I got my first job with Thurgood Marshall. Um, as few people are still around will remember, in 1960-61, the president sent um, the reserves to Berlin, to stand up against the Russian uh, threats about the city. And one of the lawyers at LDF, and there were only six of, of, of them then, was sent, Norman Amaker, later a professor in Chicago and a colleague of mine, but he was sent to, to Berlin for a year. And so um, I heard through the grapevine, in a way, uh, that uh, Marshall was looking for somebody. So I applied for the job, and um, one of my professors uh, recommended me. And so I landed uh, at, at the NACP Legal Defense Fund, the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement, and it, it changed my life. Mm. Um, and one of the interesting things about that was, uh, you know, I went to the Yale Law School, mm -hmm. and I'd say 90% of my colleagues went to work for uh, big white shoe law firms. And these guys were paid a handsome amount of money, but they, for three or four years, did nothing but scut work, uh, reading reading depositions mm -hmm. and uh, sitting, being the third person at a table. And mm -hmm. within a month, I was writing Supreme Court briefs. Mm. What, 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 I'm curious as to why you wanted that particular gig. To your point, you'd gone to Yale, and your your well, your, your classmates were taking these big, nice-paying uh, yeah. uh, law firm jobs. Well, why did Why did you want to do this? Well, I I mean, I grew up in New York, uh, in, in the neighborhood there, where um, it, it didn't matter what, uh, at least to me and my family, what um, color or ethnicity you were. My parents were very uh, liberal. 
Um, and um, uh, th- this is just what I wanted to do. Not because I d- actually, to tell you the truth, I didn't disdain what these other folks were doing. Mm-hmm. It just, I just wouldn't be very good at it. Mm. Mm. And I knew that right away. I I just wouldn't be very good at it. Mm-hmm. So let me tell you a bit about, uh, I, I, uh, just for your audience might like to know something about um, Marshall, the person. Sure, I'm about it, to ask you that. Yeah, go ahead. It, yeah. It, well, it, what was the amazing thing about Thurgood Marshall was, I mean, I think he, he lived the most dangerous legal life in, in American history, but he had an enormous sense of humor, and he loved telling stories. And one of the really fascinating things is when, when he was supervising you or telling you something, he didn't say, well, you know, maybe you should write this brief a different way or that or this. He would tell a story, and the story might be about something totally different, but there was a message in it, mm. <laughs> and and you got the message. <laughs> it kind of very quickly. That 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 kind of reminds me of a, of a, of a man named Jesus, um, that first century Palestinian Jew, um, because that's exactly what Jesus did. For those of us who are uh, who are believers and readers uh, of uh, of the of, of the good book, um, you know that oftentimes in the New Testament, when uh, they would uh, put upon Jesus and ask him questions, in, in many respects, just uh, messing with him, tempting him, testing him, he would respond in what we call parables, these uh, sort of didactic narratives. And rather than just answer your question, which he could have done, he'd tell you a parable. Uh, and when he got done telling that parable, um, you would understand exactly what the answer to the question was. Uh, and so hence, um, uh, Thurgood Marshall's way of telling a story from which you could glean uh, what he was trying to get across to you. I, I love the phrase that Michael Melstrom just used, that Thurgood Marshall lived the most dangerous legal life. The most dangerous legal life. I think I know what he means by that, but I'm going to give him a chance to unpack that when we come forward. You're listening to Michael Melchner on Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Something to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. Michael Melchner has a new book out. Uh, it's called Mosaic, Who Paid for the Bullet? Uh, I want to get to that. I've got to have a whole hour with him. Uh, we'll get to that later in this hour. But uh, you can't have the kind of career that he's, that he's had working with Thurgood Marshall and Muhammad Ali and working to abolish the death penalty and not spend a good amount of time uh, unpacking uh, that part of his career. So let me continue uh, uh, with uh, our Thurgood Marshall dialogue, Mr. Meltzner. Um, you, you used this line moments ago uh, that Thurgood Marshall, to your mind, lived the most dangerous legal life. Take some time. Unpack that for me. Well, lo- long before he became a, a judge and a justice, um, he traveled the South, the uh, Jim Crow South, at a time where he was a marked man. Um, lots of white Americans probably never heard of him, but he was known throughout the South as the NAACP lawyer, and uh, there were many times where he was told, um, you better get out of town uh, or else. And um, he was threatened uh, consistently. And, uh, you know, he, he, he took that in, and he, he became a kind of unsentimental person. I want to say something about that, mm-hmm. if I may. Sure. Um, you know, he, he, he was a, a firm and vigorous um, supporter of, of the Bill of Rights and, and the rights of defendants in criminal cases. 
But he was not sentimental about people who broke the law. And I once asked him, uh, uh, well, you know, our law, and this has changed, but at the time, our law did not permit people to uh, appeal sentences in the federal courts. Mm-hmm. So I said to him, uh, um, what, what's wrong with appealing a sentence? You can appeal a conviction. The sentence is often more important. And he looked at me and said, oh, I'm all for that as long as I can raise the sentence as well as lower it. Mm. And he said it with a twinkle in his eye. And he almost <laughs> oh, he almost always, regardless of the message, he, 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 he always um, conveyed something very human. Yeah. And so I loved, I loved your connection to... Um, to Jesus, yeah, because they both worked in in this um, subtle, uh, indirect, but extremely uh, effective way. Yeah, T- tell me. Uh, let me. I, I want to get personal now, if I can. Tell me um, what some of your takeaways are from having the experience as a young man, basically fresh out of Yale, to work with. Thurgood Marshall. Just tell me what it was like for you, what some of your takeaways were all these years later from having worked with him in that moment at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Well, well, I mean, it was just a privilege and uh, a great lesson. But, you know, he became a judge uh, a number of months after he hired me. Mm-hmm. And I worked, I wor- worked with um, a boss named Jack Greenberg for many years. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was Thurgood's selection. Mm-hmm. And you get a sense of the uh, wisdom of this man and that he appointed as his successor a white Jewish lawyer. Mm-hmm. And there was a little, a little, you know, uh, not so much criticism, but skepticism about that. But Greenberg was uh, really the real deal, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the measure of a boss for me is whether the boss cares a bit about the development of the staff he's working with. Mm-hmm. And and Greenberg was excellent at that, and and many of the lawyers I worked with uh, became uh, judges, uh, law professors, and um, government officials. And it was because of the extremely good training and support that we all got at the Legal Defense Fund. When you when, when you look back on your days there, again, you were just a young man then, when you look back on those days at the NACP LDF, with regard to cases in particular, are there one or two things that you worked on that all these years later still stand out for you? Oh, yeah, I'm going to go on for a while, You so you interrupt me when you want. Go for it. Um, um, I was given a capital case to argue in the Supreme Court of the United States when I was 26 years old. Wow. <laughs> and I may have been I I may have been the youngest lawyer ever to do that um because I wasn't even yet a member of the Supreme Court bar. Mm. You have to have practiced for 3 years to be a member of the Supreme Court bar, but they made a special exception in this case, and we actually won and got rid of the death sentence in that case because of jury discrimination against the black population of the of the county in Alabama. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a, a incredible high point. 
But then, um, of course, representing um, Mohammed was uh, another one. Hey, hold hold, hold uh, up. Before, before, before you, you said, you said I could interrupt, and I will, just for a second here. Before we go to, to the champ, to Ali, what is it like arguing and winning in front of the U.S. Supreme Court a case at the age of 26? What's that like when you win a case at 26 in front of the Supreme Court? Okay, so for three nights before you don't sleep, <laughs> you, you make sure you make sure you didn't eat much in the morning. <laughs> you stand up there and you're shaking, and then something incredible happens. You realize that you got a captive audience, and you know more about this case than they do. Ah. And so, and so you after the first question. And this is the way I have taught students how to argue in the future mm-hmm. in, in law schools. After the first question, you suddenly feel powerful. Mm. I mean, it's a little bit like your, your, your gig. I'm sure many of the people who come on this program with you, to talk with you are, are nervous. But the minute you ask them a question and they start talking about something they know, mm-hmm. they probably feel great. Oh, yeah. Well, that was... That was like the way it was uh, uh, for me, and I kind of forgot that I was <laughs> too young to be doing it. Yeah. What What do you take? And we're, we're going to talk more about this because, as I said earlier, you work with Thurgood Marshall and Jack Greenberg. You represent Ali. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, you have gone on to be one of the leading forces behind abolishing uh, America's death penalty to the extent that we have. But I want to go back again to being 26. So you're not just arguing any case. Of course, any case in front of the Supreme Court is a big deal. But you're arguing a death penalty case. Um, what, in retrospect, does it mean for you to have won a case about the death penalty in the Supreme Court? Well, my mother was very happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, mm-hmm. I, I'm, of course, of course, it, it, it felt wonderful, but it also exposed me to the racism that had led to the conviction and its uh, support in the lower court, mm-hmm. uh, courts. And it, it, it played into the fact that with a few of my colleagues and uh, also a, a great lawyer and professor, uh, Anthony Amsterdam, we started a campaign to abolish the, the death penalty. And um, it, it took a long time to get to 1972, too, when it was, in fact, abolished for four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so I see that first case as having been a bridge to uh, something much bigger, because w- when, whenever I talk about this in, in uh, lectures or classes, someone says to me, well, do you think it was worth it? And and I always say, uh, when you've saved, uh, played a role in saving over 600 lives, uh, you kind of feel it's worth it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Let me me stay with that. This is, as we say, this is getting good. This is getting good, uh, uh, Professor Meltzner. I want to stay with this for a second. So I had a a guest on this program um, some weeks back. Her name is Judge LaDoris Cordell, retired uh, jurist uh, here in California. Uh, Notable uh, work um, she has done. Uh, even since her retirement, but she she made the point, and I don't I can't recall the number, but she made the point that hundreds of times, hundreds of times, that the issue that Thurgood Marshall dissented on more than any other issue, uh, while a member of the U.S. Supreme Court was the death penalty, 
that one issue, he laser focused on the entire uh, tenure of his uh, his being on the high court. Uh, and here you are at 26 working at LDF again, addressing and winning a case on the death penalty uh, in front of that court. What 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 do you make of the fact that more than any other issue, Thurgood Marshall laid on this death penalty thing for the entirety of his run on the Supreme Court? Well, uh, Marshall and, and his colleague uh, William Brennan mm-hmm. uh, d- made the decision in 1976 that they weren't going to pick and choose, uh, that they were against the death penalty for um, a variety of reasons. It was immoral and unethical uh, in, in their view. Now, the real key here for me is that the Supreme Court of the United States has never, whether it was a, a so-called liberal court or a plainly arch-conservative court the way we have today, has never, never um, uh, decided that death penalty cases are infected with racial discrimination in many ways. Mm. Well, Marshall and Brennan um, knew that, and uh, they came out in a different place. And so they decided that the system was corrupt. The system was unconstitutional. They didn't want to decide one case or another case. They understood that many of the people involved had committed horrible crimes. They weren't excusing them. They were saying that the system as a whole was defective and unconstitutional, in Mm. part because of race, in part because it was imperfect. And it killed people who were innocent. Yeah. Many people listening to you right now in this audience weren't even born in the 70s. And of course, many of the students that you have taught over the years were not born in the early 70s. So let me just ask you to take a step back and remind us of what was happening in the country then that made it plausible, made it possible that for at least four years, the U.S. Supreme Court would do away with the death penalty in this country. Well, um, the the campaign that the Legal Defense Fund ran stopped executions in 1967. And the country, you know, just was fine. Nobody was really uh, totally outraged by that. So in 72, uh, the court, by the thinnest of margins, decided that the death penalty had, had been operating in a totally arbitrary way. Uh, People who who committed heinous crimes were sentenced to life, and others who you know uh, were involved in a in a messy situation and probably hadn't behaved well, but they were not the kind of people who you would execute. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were sent to death row, and so the attitude at at that time was that the key, the key was arbitrariness in the way death sentences were handed out, and also. Uh, there was understanding about re- the role of race, but an unwillingness to name it. Mm. It was under the under the radar, and so the court in 1972, by a 5-4 margin, said the death penalty goes. And, and there was a loophole. And the loophole was well, if you could fix arbitrariness then maybe you could have it again. Mm. And in 1976, the court decided that that some of the states that had responded had actually fixed the loophole. 
Well, in all the years subsequent to that, we've decided that it just didn't work. But the present court won't acknowledge that. So to your point now, um, I got just two minutes here and we'll do uh, this question and then we'll continue when we come forward, uh, Professor Meltzner. But let me ask you in these two minutes I have right now, what then, uh, all these years later, do you make of America's current attitude about the death penalty? Well, the interesting thing is it's withering away. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number of executions is plummeted. The number of states that have abolished have increased. Actually, if you add to the number of states that have abolished, the number of states that haven't executed anybody in 10 years, you've got a majority. Mm-hmm. And um, juries are deciding to send people to prison instead, and prosecutors aren't bringing death cases. The one uh, rub here is that you've got a Supreme Court that is dominated by people who won't even uh, consider uh, abolition in any respect, but if, but if, but if but if the rest of the country is moving in that direction, and I'm not I'm not at all naive in asking this question, but if the rest of the country, if the data is moving as you just suggested that it is, and indeed it is, why can't they get that? Why can't they get with well, that? Well, well, it's because uh, the Supreme Court sometimes follows what people think and sometimes doesn't, and this court is impervious to public opinion and behavior on this particular issue. Yeah. So, um, so that's... In, you know, I have no doubts that eventually, um, long after uh, I'm gone, that this is going to be an abolitionist country. All the countries in the world, with maybe one exception that are like us, have abolished the death penalty. Yeah. From your mouth to God's ears, Professor Meltzner. So that's Thurgood Marshall. That's the NAACP LDF. Uh, And that's, uh, in part, uh, uh, a good um, illustration of his work uh, over many decades on the death penalty. What I haven't gotten to yet is his representing the GOAT, Ali. We'll talk about that with Michael Meltzer when we come forward on Tavis Smiling. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. May Fresh Daily in the Mert Park, Los Angeles, California. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Michael Melsner is a great American, and I am honored to have him on this program in this hour. He has a new book out called Mosaic, Who Paid for the Bullet? We'll talk about that uh, on the backside of this hour. Uh, but his career uh, has, has been quite monumental in all the work that he's done at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, working and hired by Thurgood Marshall, uh, all the work he's done uh, to uh, lead America, uh, to help America see why it needed to abolish the death penalty, which we did for four years back in the 70s. Uh, he was at the forefront of that. And uh, now I want to talk about uh, he's representing the GOAT, uh, Muhammad Ali. I had I am honored to have, to say that I knew Ali in his lifetime. We were friends. I interviewed him many times, traveled with him, stayed at his house. I've had some great moments with Ali, but I never got a chance to represent Muhammad Ali. Michael Melsner, you did. Tell me that story. Well, uh, you know, after uh, Muhammad beat Sonny Liston and became the champ, um, everybody loved him. And then he had the temerity to announce that he was a Muslim. And uh, the attitude of, of white America shifted completely. And then we're in the, in the middle of the war in Vietnam, and he, when he was drafted, he refused to, uh, f- to fight. He refused to accept induction. 
and um, he was uh, indicted for a draft evasion and convicted. And uh, at the moment he was charged with the crime, every athletic commission in the United States uh, pulled his license. The first one was the New York State Athletic Commission, and it was the most important one. He also pulled his heavyweight championship. Mm -hmm. Now, um, uh, in 1967, uh, I talked with his personal lawyer, Chauncey Eskridge, in Chicago, and I suggested that we might have a case. And I suggested it in part because of something that had nothing to do with Mohammed. It had to do with me as a 10-year-old with my father listening to Friday night fights from Madison Square Garden. My father would occasionally gamble on the fights. And he said to me, uh, you know, you, the thing to do is to bet on the guy who will uh, win and uh, and uh, or lose, and there'll be a third fight as well as a second one. And he also taught me about all the fighters, and many of them had criminal records. Mm -hmm. And so I put in the complaint, the legal complaint, that Mohammed um, had been stripped of his license because of his involvement with the criminal law, but that the New York State Athletic Commission had licensed all sorts of people with criminal <laughs> records, a lot more serious than somebody being charged with what Mohammed was charged with. Mm -hmm. And um, eventually we got into the files and we found out that 244 licensed fighters, including champs and contenders, uh, had been convicted of crimes, some of them major felonies and still been licensed. The state didn't care in those cases. Mm. So it was obvious that it was a punitive action against Mohammed uh, because of his Muslim associations and his race. Mm. So we brought this case, and eventually it came before a, a, a federal judge in New York who has, was a Marine Corps hero in the Second World, Marine Corps hero in the Second World War, and we were really afraid in the end, he decided that Mohammed had been badly treated, arbitrarily treated, in violation of the Constitution. And the result was the first Ali-Frazier fight, and Ali being reinstated. And uh, I'll never forget uh, going to Madison Square Garden and watching that fight, the first fight I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. It was brutal. Uh, it was quite a, an event. Mohammed was rusty, and he correctly lost the split decision, but of course, uh, as you know, uh, the rest is history. Oh, yeah, he, he came, came back, back and exactly. became, <laughs> and, and what's most interesting is he was reviled as a traitor and a draft dodger uh, in the late 60s until public attitude towards the Vietnam War shifted, yeah. and suddenly he became acceptable and eventually the most heroic figure in the world I, I have I have I have chill bumps right now I I, I say that um, because um, this is a moment for me I mean the, the the most speaking of moments this is the seminal moment of Ali's life of his professional career when they strip him of his titles refuse to let him fight he can't make an income uh, and here you are at the epicenter of helping him get back in the ring 
I mean, you, I mean, you can't you can't tell the story of Ali without talking about that particular period. And for those of us who call him the goat, uh, I speak for myself. I don't call him the goat just because of his exploits in the ring. He's always been my hero because he stood in his truth. He fought that. He dealt with all the repercussions and all the consequences. He did not back down. And you helped him win that fight. That's a big deal, Michael Meltzner. Amen, amen about him being a hero. And, and, and you've been very kind about mentioning my novel, Mosaic. Uh, but I want to say, for anybody who's really interested in the details of how Mohammed, Muhammad uh, came back, uh, there's a, a chapter in a, another book of mine called The Making of a Civil Rights Lawyer mm -hmm. that I guess is available on, you know, places like Amazon mm -hmm. that ha that tells that story. Uh, um, so, and it's it's an incredible story, oh, I, I think, of what... what what his life was like. What 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 were your? I asked you earlier about your takeaways from working with Thurgood Marshall. Let me ask the same question now about Ali. Um, you were up close with him. You were fighting for him to get uh, to get him back in the ring and to have America do right by him. What were your takeaways about the time you spent with the champ? Well, two things. The thing about about the champ was, in person, he was the same as everybody thinks about. Him. He was no different in private than in in public. Mm -hmm. He was the way he was. And the second thing is, and this is really for people interested in the law, you know, you can represent somebody in a case like this, and it's all about you and law books and colleagues who help you and picking the right case and judge and court. And, you mean, the client may be somebody who sends you um, uh, missives about, about religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I felt this was a legal case more than anything else, but I was very proud to represent him. And in, in our encounter, um, uh, I was introduced to him, uh, by, um, his, his favorite broadcaster, uh, and, um, he was just the way in private that he that he came across in public. I don't know whether he, what your experience was like. Same way, but same that way. That was mine. Nope, I couldn't agree. Couldn't agree more. Same way in public as in private. Funny, uh, to the point. Uh, of course, to your point, always sending you missives one way or another uh, about faith and religion. <laughs> and so, uh, I had some funny moments with him. But I, I get, as I said, I, I've got chill bumps because I, I I know this story well. But the opportunity to talk to the lawyer who fought for the champ and got him back in the ring, got his license to fight uh, once again, is a big deal. Our guest is Michael Melster. We'll continue when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. For all the freedom-loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like freedom. Let's get back to more of this rich dialogue with Tavis, Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Michael Melchner is our guest. Um, what a career, what a life, what a legacy. Um, his new book is called Mosaic, Who Paid for the Bullet? It is a novel, which is really fascinating, but it's in part based on some real events that Michael Melchner was a part of. Michael Melchner, tell me about the book Mosaic. So in the early 60s, a uh, courageous uh, black dentist in Greensboro, North Carolina, called Jack Greenberg up and he said that uh, he had patients who couldn't get the, the uh, kind of um, treatment they needed, care they needed in Greensboro, uh, because they had Jim Crow hospitals with uh, excellent facilities. 
And uh, Greenberg said to me, uh, sue the bastards. <laughs> and um, uh, so at the time, in 1946, actually, the federal government started sending money to hospitals around the country. But in order to get the law passed, uh, they had to, the, the administration had to agree to a separate but equal clause. In other words, it was up to Southern hospitals whether they wanted to segregate or uh, exclude uh, uh, black patients and doctors and dentists um, if they wanted to. And hundreds of these hospitals were segregated, and uh, they uh, they maintained these policies even after when we won the lawsuit against uh, against this provision, mm-hmm. it was up to the federal government to enforce uh, the law against all these hospitals, which had received vast amounts of federal money. Well, at first, they, they had limited success, and 20% of the hospitals not only refused to uh, comply, uh, many of them pretended to comply. You know, they sort of uh, took one patient and said, oh, uh, uh, we're really integrated now. Well, there was a courageous and charismatic woman doctor in a big southern city uh, that in the novel I call Gulf City, but it's pretty obvious what it was, mm-hmm. who became a mole for the federal government. And she explained to the federal inspectors what was really going on. Very shortly after that, she was found dead on her front porch. Mm. The um, city fathers decided it all was an accident, or um, uh, maybe uh, she was responding to a robbery, or maybe she was a lesbian, maybe she had a black lover, and the case disappeared. Nothing ever happened. Forty years later, I got a phone call from a medical researcher. He said, I think she was murdered. I have some proof. Look into it. Uh, you were the only lawyer who, who was still around who dealt with this. So I did, and unfortunately I had to tell him that there was no proof, mm. that everybody was gone, and um, he just had to forget about it. Two weeks later, I woke up in the middle of the night with a cold sweat. I knew I had to do something, and the novel is the result. The novel tells tells the story, but it's a novel. In other words, yeah. I've I've created various characters, but it all comes from actual events and um, what happened when uh, the lover of this um, uh, charismatic doc, female doctor who was a civil rights lawyer decides to seek revenge. Mm. Michael Melsner is an amazing guy. Uh, and not only is he a brilliant lawyer, uh, but he's also a playwright and a novelist. Uh, this new book is called Mosaic, Who Paid for the Bullet? Written by Michael Melster, our remaining moments with him when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. From the Merck Park with love, love this love. is Tavis Smiley. Sounds, Sounds different. different. Huh. This, this is Tavis Smiley. Michael Melster, I've got about four minutes left in this conversation, which I have enjoyed immensely. I can't even, um, I don't have a language to tell how much I. I have enjoyed this and how honored I am to have had the opportunity to speak to you for this hour. Um, I've got as many lawyer jokes as anybody. <laughs> I got a bunch <laughs> of, I got a bunch, but, but I, 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 uh, I, I say that only because um, you are the epitome uh, of one who has used the law 
um, to do so much good um, uh, across the years. Um, what do you make of what you've been able to accomplish uh, inside uh, of the law uh, over all these decades? Well, you know, it's a, it's a tough question these days because of what's going on in the country. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm, I, what I really want to say, I guess, is is that what I'm very proud of, of the things that we did uh, at LDF in the 60s and proud of what I did. But, you know, everything has to be put in an institution. Mm-hmm. If it weren't for the Legal Defense Fund, um, none of this would have happened. And it's a great organization, and it's still doing it. And mm-hmm. uh, and it's challenging everything that ought to be challenged today. Even though um, at times you you kind of feel uh, that the civil rights, the momentum of the civil rights movement, uh, has been lost. Mm-hmm. But it really is a different country because of the civil rights movement and many of the issues that that trouble us today we, we wouldn't even be exposed if it if we hadn't done what we done in the 60s and, and yeah. 70s when you see the retrenchment that we are making in this country um indeed uh, in in the in, in in the sphere of 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 legal proceedings when you see the retrenchment um how do you sustain your hope in this moment um well uh I don't know. I, I I always quote Satchel Page. Mm. He said, "Don't look back. They, someone might be gaining on you." Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, I think we just have to keep fighting the fight. Uh, it, the civil rights movement was against enormous odds in uh, for for most of its existence, mm-hmm. and um, so there's no difference today. The, the the issues may be a little different, but. Um, the odds are still against you. You have to keep fighting for it. And um, in the end, it's the best way to live. Mm-hmm. And that's a great way to close this program. Um, Michael Melsner has not uh, just been a witness to history. He has been a history maker. And his work and witness are to be celebrated. And I, um, I again, I, I revel in the opportunity to talk to him for this hour. His name is Michael Melchner. Uh, his book is called Mosaic, Who Paid for the Bullet? He is the Matthews Distinguished University Professor of Law Emeritus at Northeastern University School of Law. Professor Melchner, what an honor again, sir, to have had you on this program. Thank you, thank you, thank you for this blessed opportunity. And back to you, and thanks for the play. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, my friend.